0: Hi, I'm Steve, the host of the Tabletop Inventing Podcast. Normally, our podcast theme music comes in at this point, and we hear that inspiring voice. If you've been following our episodes this month, you will know that we are adding an extra episode every week on Mondays for a total of two every week. Today's episode is number three of six in our profound and powerful podcast series. This episode revisits one of my favorite maker education evangelists, David Thornburg, here is a taste of his story.
1: Up through the middle grades, I was not a good student. And in fact, I'd been identified as mildly mentally retarded. And that was because my attention wandered and, you know, whatever. So I ended up at a Votech school in Chicago that also had an academic track in it as well. And it's called Lane Technical High School. My day was filled with shop classes and academic subjects. And everything was taught in a contextual manner. What that meant is you started out, every freshman had to take mechanical drawing. Then the next course that you took was plane geometry. And suddenly now all those shapes that you've been drawing in mechanical drawing, you understood the mathematics behind them because of the things that you learn in geometry. And that was a beautiful approach because you were motivated to learn the stuff because you'd already been using it. And I started my undergrad work at Northwestern University in electrical engineering. I changed majors because all the electrical engineering courses I was taking, I could ace the finals on the first day because of what I'd learned at Lane.
0: Wow. How could we get our students prepared to ace their entry-level college finals on the first day of class? Listen to the whole episode for David's educational formula.
1: Do you dream of a classroom where learning is natural? Can we inspire students to lifelong learning? What exactly is the purpose of an education? Inspiring students to be curious, independent, creative, innovative, Deep thinking. Confident. Proactive. Collaborative. Determined. Educated. Rise to the challenge of changing the world. This is teaching. This is learning. This is who we are. Welcome to the Tabletop Inventing
0: Podcast. My guest today is David Thornburg. Dr. Thornburg has worked in the field of educational technology since the early 80s. His focus is on STEM education, and he is a strong proponent of tinkering as a pathway to helping children learn about engineering. He is the co-author of the book, The Invent to Learn Guide to 3D Printing in the Classroom, which is aligned to both the next generation science standards and common core math standards.
2: So let's start off today by asking you, David, to tell us a little bit about yourself as an educator.
1: Well, I came into education from the back end. After I got my Ph.D., I was working at the Xerox Palo Alto Research Center as a research scientist and inventor. And uh, a couple of years later, my son was born, and there's nothing to get you interested in, as interested in education as having a kid. <laughs> so hmm. my interest yeah. in education really started because of him. And once I fell down that rabbit hole, I've been focused on education almost ever since. And I've taught uh, mostly at the university level, uh, but uh, also hang out with kids whenever I can. And down in Brazil, I've worked with middle school kids and and whatnot. It's just I, I love hanging out with bright young minds and showing them ways to uh express themselves and and to learn stuff um, through their own creativity
2: so can you give us kind of a broad strokes view of uh, education or the state of education as you see it right now
1: well uh, what i see happening right now steve is really positive um you know we've we're coming out the back end of a dark of a dark period in the united states Uh, that was epitomized by No Child Left Behind. Because a lot of people interpreted that to mean that you had to teach to the test and that if it wasn't on the test, it just didn't get taught. Um, And that's a bit of an overstatement, but there's more truth to that than I'd like to admit. Um, And a consequence of that was we had a bunch of kids who had 12 years of NCLB education, No Child Left Behind education, who suddenly find themselves in college not very well prepared uh, for a world where education is more open, more flexible, where they're expected to be more creative and and better problem solvers. Uh, They're really great at memorizing stuff and then passing standardized tests. That doesn't mean that they truly understand at a deep level the things that they're learning. Now the reason I say that this is a positive time is because uh, we've got some new standards. The next, to me, the, the one that's the big one is the next generation science standards, which encompasses not just science, but also engineering. For the first time in the United States, engineering is part of the K-12 curriculum uh, for the states that have adopted those standards. And what the, the overall approach has been is to say in the past we had a curriculum that was a mile wide and an inch deep and now we're going to focus on 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 narrowing that into core ideas and then explore those with great depth Um, i think it's a very smart move to make also it's not just about having kids learn about science it's about having them learn how scientists think or to learn about engineering, but to learn also how engineers think. And that has also rubbed off into the Common Core State Standards, which are different ones, uh, relating both to mathematics and to language arts. That, um, so the big shift that we've seen yeah, the way i like to talk about it is that we've shifted from a noun-based curriculum, the stuff that you know, to a verb-based curriculum, which is what are you able to do with what it is that you know. And, and that really is the cornerstone of progressive education. I mean, Dewey said, I don't care what a child knows. I care what he can do with what he knows. And so that's, that to me is something that we should celebrate and, and be very excited about. It's also a challenge, though, because teachers who are coming off of this other educational model uh, need as much help and support as they can possibly get. Uh, they need the staff development. They need people to, to help them make these transitions, and, and schools uh, have to really be sure that they get that because if they don't, these standards will
2: get co-opted, and that would be a, a really bad thing. So with all these changes happening, um, how are we, how are we approaching this from a practical perspective? How are educators across the country and administrators and systems, um, how are they, how are they coming at the problem? Are they they understanding how this shift should occur?
1: I think it's a mixed bag. Um, I mean, there are some people that have just said, thank God, you know. <laughs> we can go back to doing what we've always known was the right thing to do, uh, and in fact, those people never stopped doing the right thing it's, at some level it's just that they couldn't be very public about it um, But now you know it's it's like all the things that I truly believe about education are are back in the popular vocabulary again, and so I really am happy about that. Uh, but there are other schools and other parts of the country where people are skeptical of these kinds of changes. And so, uh, it's a, as I said, it's a mixed bag. Some people are ready for it and, and, and others aren't. Uh, and I mean, some states have said, we're not going to sign on to these uh, next generation science standards, even though they're national standards. Uh, some states have even said we're not even signing on to Common Core even though uh, their funding, their federal funding, as I understand it, is at risk if they don't. Um, so you think, well, wow, you know, what's what's that all about and why are people fighting fighting this stuff? And I have to say, Steve, I'm not a huge standards fan, but compared to what we've had in the past, this stuff is looking pretty good. Um, and. And I don't know why people are are fighting it because it's the ultimate beneficiary of it is our children, and ultimately the country.
2: Well, I think you and I are uh, definitely speaking the same language on this because one of the things that that I uh, ask people all the time is, you know, when when students can just go on Wikipedia and improve their IQ points by about 20, how do you really right. inspire and measure achievement? Like, what is what is achievement in that in that uh, framework? <coughs>
1: well, right, and and I mean to me, the whole uh, one of the things I've said for years is, I mean, to start with, any any educational system that's based on memory is is certainly at risk in a world of of uh, universal access to the internet, um, but. That said, just because people have access to the Internet doesn't even mean that they know how to use it effectively. And, and for the longest time, I've said that uh, there are three basic skills that people need to have. One is to figure out how to find stuff. The second is how to figure out if what they found is accurate. And then the third is to determine if what they found is relevant. Uh, and these types of search strategies are things that we have to help kids learn, so that even when they're using the internet, that they're, you know, they're very effective uh, in their in their use of it. They can um, they can use it in, in some good ways. And there have been some studies on this that have been pretty uh, pretty interesting. I mean that. They've taken college kids, uh, freshman kids in college. There was a study done at Northwestern University, where they took college kids, actually from another university, and gave them a series of questions on using the Internet. And they found that even though these people all said that they were Internet-savvy, they really didn't know how to use it to get verifiable information that would be germane to their courses. Um, and so these are skills that, these are skills that have to be taught and if we don't, if we don't teach those, then we can't assume that just because kids have access to the internet that they are are learning a lot. There's an interesting mythology that was running around for some years, the idea of the digital native and the digital immigrants. And you know, the digital natives are the ones who grew up with all this technology and the immigrants are the old folks who grew up in a time where it didn't exist. And the implication was that the natives had this all under control. Well, research is showing that that's not true at all. I mean, um, you could become real facile at Facebook and a bunch of other things, but when it comes down to establishing whether or not a particular historical event happened the way your textbook says it did, uh, that's, that's a completely different set of skills and something that we, we need to spend more time focusing on. Uh, so there's two aspects um, in answer to your question. First, first one is, as I said, if you're using the Internet, know how to use it properly and effectively. And the second is, how much time are we spending just getting raw information crammed into kids' heads? versus having them do stuff with this information, uh, building and adding on to the knowledge themselves. And the way I like to refer to that uh, is through the concept of Google-proof questions, asking questions for which Google (laughs) isn't the answer. Um, And it turns out that these are trickier kinds of questions with which to come up, but boy, they're, they're really powerful when you can find them and they result in some very spirited conversation among students and teachers, and, and some deep learning takes takes place because there's no one source that students will be able to go and say, oh, well, the answer is this. Um, and, and that all ties into the core of project-based learning, which then gets back to Dewey's concept of not just what a kid knows, but what a child can do with what uh, he knows.
2: We've been dancing around the core question that we always like to get to on our podcast and that is, so given this backdrop, what is the purpose of an education?
1: Well, to me the purpose of an education is for people to be able to, you know, to thrive, um, to, to thrive in, in, in their communities and, and in their lives. And some of that uh, relates to local area things, and some of them relates to global issues. Um, so, um, you know, the purpose of an education should be to equip people with the requisite skills that they can make informed decisions. And uh, understanding that some of us may make different decisions, but at least we're operating from our perspective with the best information we've got. Uh, And I guess Jefferson, it was, said that purpose of an education is, well, he he put it this way, as I recall, that you can't have a democracy without an educated populace. And I think there's some truth to that. So at the core level of purpose of education, it's how do we have a functioning democracy. Um, And that's a very very deep and very important uh, rationale.
2: You added a key a key word in there that I don't hear very often. You said functioning. <laughs>
1: yes, right. Yeah, because it's not it's not particularly
2: functioning if people aren't participating. I suppose at least not in a meaningful way.
1: Right. Yes. And 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 again, it's it's not that everybody has to uh, agree with each other, but that when they disagree, they disagree. Uh, they can they can argue their positions based on. On, on data that they've got, and and on their core beliefs that have some foundation, uh, and and I think that I think that that's I think that's important. And we've got so many issues facing us on a global scale right now. I, I don't even like watching the news anymore. It's like every day there's there's just some amazingly tragic stuff going on in the world. And there's part of it that isn't made is natural disasters and everything else going on. Um, and you have to believe at some point that human beings can play a huge role in fixing or in uh, moderating all of these bad things that are going on if, if we just were to put our minds to it. Um, that requires, that requires an educated public and and it requires public that's engaged in the process.
2: I completely agree. So with that, with that purpose, how do we, how do we come at this in practical ways? Like what, what are the practical approaches we can take to, to rise to that purpose?
1: Well, I mean, within, within the classroom setting, um, You know, we we give lip service to critical thinking skills, but the fact is we have to, we have to take steps to reinforce uh, a student's capacity to uh, take a challenge, uh, gather the information on that challenge, and then from that, Create a position from which they can argue with some uh, with some sense of, of uh, awareness of you know deep deep awareness about about the topic. Uh, I think I think that's I think that's important. Um, now the the umbrella language that's being used for the kinds of pedagogical model that makes sense for all of this is inquiry driven project based learning. And I think that uh, I think that's a that's a wonderful model, because what it does is it takes the teacher away from this uh, huge responsibility of being the font of all knowledge in the front of the room, and shares that responsibility uh, by putting the kids in in charge of their own projects and coming up with their own insights and ideas and then sharing those projects with their colleagues where they are open to criticism and suggestions and and improvements and and everything else. Um, And I think that that's that's really good. Um, But, you know, the the argument against that is when you take a look at real project-based learning, some of the textbook publishers who have a vested interest in staying in business would say to themselves, well, geez, you know, what role do we have to play if, if teachers aren't going to teach to the test or teach what's in a textbook? Uh, you know, what, what role is there for us to play? And I think that there are some publishers that would be, for personal reasons, concerned if, if we were to move headlong in this direction and might might provide some resistance to it. Uh, I'm sure that they'll find other ways to keep their doors open, so I'm not worried about them long term. But it certainly is requiring some new thinking on their part, and I'm sure that there are publishers today who are thinking very deeply about that topic and saying how, how can we support these pedagogical transformations on behalf of, of, all, of uh, all of our children.
2: So here at Tabletop Inventing, we're quite passionate about a term that I know you and I have freely used quite a bit, um, and that's maker education. So how does maker right. education fit in with this inquiry-based, project-based learning that you were describing?
1: Well, you know um, that's that's a terrific question, Steve, because uh, uh, one of one of our colleagues uh, up in up in Canada, Peter Skilling. I don't know if you know him, but uh, yeah, <laughs> yeah, Peter's Peter's a great guy, and he did a blog uh, about a month ago talking about tinkering based learning. <laughs> okay. And which is a step beyond project based learning it's tinker, you know you just you just get in and you muss around with stuff, and then out of that you're going to start learning things <laughs> and uh, in our in our three d printer workshop one of the first one of the first activities we have teachers do is we toss them in the deep end of the pool with a design challenge that happens to be a life-and-death challenge on a fictitious space mission uh, where they have to design a plug to, you know, take care of a hole that's been punched in the side of a spaceship by a piece of space debris before all the oxygen gets sucked out. And they have to design it uh, with software and they have to print it on a 3D printer and... Uh, When we've done this with kids, we don't even tell them what software to use. Uh, With grown-ups, we said, well, uh, we're going to suggest that you use SketchUp. Uh, But right away, they're trying stuff out. They're tinkering. They're working in groups. They're saying, gee, this doesn't work. That doesn't work. Oh, but look at this, you know, and... This looks like this might work, and they're out there making measurements, and then uh, lo and behold, they come up with design and uh, they print it out, and it looks like the problem solved, and so uh, they've reached success. And after they do a project like that, we ask them, "What subject areas did you explore?" And the answer is, uh, "Oh well, we had mathematics, we had physics, we had uh, uh, you know all these different." Uh, engineering, we had all these different subject areas. They were all explored in the context of this single project. And I said, well, but did you teach any of this? No. <laughs> did anybody teach it to you? No. Well, that's an example of, of, of real tinkering-based learning. That's that's deep end of the pool stuff. Um, and Gary Steger does his whole workshops. Largely that way. I mean, there, uh, Norma went to one of the ones he did at ISTE, and uh, it's like, okay, well, here's a station for people who want to do this kind of stuff, and here's a station for people who want to do this kind of stuff, and you just feel free to move around and and explore whatever it is you want to explore, explore, whatever it is you want to explore, and people will gravitate to things that challenge them. Uh, you know, that's. That's the thing that I think we shortchange kids sometimes by thinking that if we don't push them, they won't try tricky things. Fact is, uh, left to their own, the challenge is that kids will try something that may be a little too tricky for them, and then we either have to help them redefine their projects so that they don't get overly frustrated or provide some other resources for them so that they can uh, be successful. Um, but this idea that if we don't if we don't teach it, it won't get learned, I just don't think is true.
2: Well, that's probably going to take a lot of unlearning for us. I mean, I, I mean, I think you and I probably uh, went through a whole schooling approach where you know the the person at the front of the room was very much a part of that uh, learning process. Although it runs in my mind that that wasn't true for you. That was true for me, but. Um, what was your schooling experience like? Well, I'll tell you, <laughs> the, <laughs> I and I didn't know this at the time,
1: but um, when I got to high school, <laughs> well, to start with my uh, up up through the middle grades, I was not a good student, and in fact, I'd been identified as mildly mentally retarded. <laughs>
2: okay. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> okay. Wow, that's so, that's that's right kind of brutal.
1: Yeah, that's kind of tough. Well, and that was because my attention wandered and, you know, whatever. Um, and so I ended up at a votech school in Chicago that also had an academic uh, track in it as well. And it's called Lane Technical High School. Well, it turned out that Lane Tech was the second oldest school in the city of Chicago. And the founder of the school, Albert G. Lane, was a colleague of Francis W. Parker, who ran at that time the lab school at the University of Chicago and had worked, uh, I guess both of them had worked with Dewey. And Parker was interested in the academic schools, and Lane wanted to do a school for kids who may not go to college. Um, And so he created uh, what we now call Lane Tech, and when I was there, it's now a co-ed school. When I was there, 6,000 boys. It was all boys' school. Um, and I had a full, I mean, my day was filled with shop classes and academic subjects. And everything was taught in a contextual manner. And what that meant is you started out, um, every freshman had to take mechanical drawing. We didn't have CAD programs. We didn't have computers at that time. So everybody had to take mechanical drawing. Then the next course that you took as, as part of that sequence was plane geometry. And suddenly now all those shapes that you've been drawing in mechanical drawing, you understood the mathematics behind them because of you know the things that you learn in geometry. And that was a beautiful approach because you were motivated to learn the stuff because you'd already been using it. And they actually structured the entire uh, four-year curriculum with that attention to detail. Uh, And as a consequence, when I graduated from Lane Tech and I started my undergrad work at Northwestern Northwestern University in electrical engineering, I changed majors uh, because... All the engineering courses, all the electrical engineering courses I was taking, I could ace the finals on the first day because of what I'd learned at Lane, okay? So I thought, <laughs> wow, you know, I'm, a, I'm not being challenged at all, so I changed, so I changed majors, ended up in engineering sciences, uh, and, and it was, it was a smart, smart thing for me to do. Uh, but, it, but it speaks volumes to that school,
2: so I'm, I'm looking at the story you know, from beginning to end, and I s- see that through the process of making and building things, this Lane school took a student who, you know, by all accounts, was maybe not interested in the school or not, you know, not excelling in the school, put things in context, and suddenly you became very interested in the school and very interested in the projects, and as a result decided to go on uh, eventually to get a PhD. Um, That's right. I normally don't ask this question, but why don't more people use maker education? I
1: think for a lot of folks, it's kind of a new, it, it's still a new thing for them. Um, you, you know, the word is only coming into the vocabulary now. Um, you know, Dale Doherty is pushing the daylights out of it through Make Magazine and the Maker Fairs and all this kind of stuff, and and rightly so um but i went um i did an experiment mostly because our friend kim brand had done the experiment in indiana i tried it here in illinois i went into a uh, hardware store right down the street and and they just acquired some new space so they don't know what to do with in the store so i said uh i said oh i said this new space i said uh uh, is this where you're going to have your 3D printers and and your um, uh, CNC machines and all this stuff for people to use? And the guy said, What are you talking about? And I said, Well, I said that's a perfect place for a makerspace. And he said, What's that? I said, Well, I said here's the deal. You're a hardware store, right? People come in here and they buy parts. They buy things that they make stuff with but a lot of them don't have all the tools that they need in their own homes. So suppose you made the tools available to people here and they bought all the materials from you. Wouldn't that be a cool thing to do? And he said, yeah. He says, it's the first I've heard of this. And I thought, boy, if the owner of a hardware store hasn't heard of it, what's to make a think that anybody else should have heard of it? I mean, in some sense, you know, Lowe's, Home Depot, places like that, they should be falling all over themselves to build these things. And, and you know, and proof of that pudding is you look at the scrapbooking world. To start with, the maker movement isn't just about the electronic gadgets and things uh, and the physical stuff I like making. I mean, look at the popularity of the cooking shows on TV. It's amazing. You know, there's tons of them. Uh, these competitions, and and they're fascinating to watch because people are uh, given real challenges, and and their way their way um, to success using un, you know materials that were previously unknown to them. Uh, and the fact that that's drawn such a huge audience says that there's a pent-up interest in that topic. Um, you go to the scrapbooking stores where they've got the workrooms in the back of the store. In the front of the store, they've got all the materials. And what makes the back of the room important is not just that it's space nice for you to work on your scrapbook, but other people who are working on their scrapbooks are back there, so you've got folks who can, uh, that you can bounce ideas off of um and that's and those are successful nationwide scrapbooking in fact i thought a perfect place for makerspaces would be in fact in a shopping center uh right next to a scrapbooking store um and so um who knows maybe that'll happen but it hasn't it hasn't caught on yet and I think that what we need to do is just do everything in our possible, uh, in, in anything possible, to get the to get the word out.
2: Well, David, I appreciate all the efforts that you're putting into this. Um, uh, between well, you're
1: doing you're doing you're doing at least as much, if not more, than I am, Steve. So
2: oh, well, I mean, I, if there were a hundred of us, it probably wouldn't be enough. But I mean, we just keep spreading the word. We just keep. Um, you know, talking to teachers and you know, saying these things. I mean, I guess I hadn't. Uh, I you know, you and I have spoken uh, you know, quite a few times before. I guess I had never picked up that you were actually sort of an at-risk student at one point in your life. Um, and uh, it, it just validates something that I've always thought. After looking at you know the maker tools, you know, I just I know lots of smart kids that have, you know they've gotten into trouble and their their lives kind of went the wrong way. You know, I, you know, kids that I grew up with are now. You know, adults, and you know, and I, I ask myself, you know, why do I have a PhD, and you know, they're you know in and out of you know trouble all the time. Right. But I, I just think there's so much hope here, and I just I continue doing what you're doing. We we love the books. Um, I love the discussions we have. I love uh, hearing your opinions. Um, and I don't want to keep you any longer. We've uh, uh, had a fantastic couple of conversations here, but before I let you go. Um, Why don't you tell our audience how they can get in touch with you and maybe a couple of resources that you have that they might be interested in?
1: Sure. Well, to start with, I love hearing from your audience, and the best way to reach me is through my personal email address. And if they just refer to uh, uh, your name or the show title in the address, uh, or excuse me, in the subject line, then it moves to the top of my list. And my address is Dthornburg, D-T-H-O-R-N-B-U-R-G at AOL.com, a um, simple, simple address. Just have to remember, it's T-H-O-R-N-B-U-R-G. Um, and so uh, and then, uh, of course, uh, our book on 3D printing in the classroom, which is available from Amazon, which is called The Invent to Learn Guide to 3D Printing in the Classroom, um, is, is a resource that a lot of people are enjoying. And so I invite people to take a look at that um, people who are interested in three D printing in general and just want to keep their finger on the news in that field, uh, because it's you know just there's all kinds of breakthroughs all the time. Um, there's a website called 3ders.org, 3ders.org, and uh, I, I go there at least once a week because of breakthroughs on how 3D printing is being used in medicine. How it's being used, uh, you know, like the SpaceX, um, the 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 rocket that's going to be taking people up to the space station. I just read last week that they just tested successfully a 3D printed engine. Big is in that in wow. that rocket. That's yeah, that's pretty interesting stuff. So in terms of the awareness of the gee whiz factor of this stuff, it's it's amazing. Um, and and then the other resources too is to say, you know, three D printing is just part of it. And if you really want to get into this whole inventing world. There are so many other tools to look at uh, as well. It's not instead of, but as well. Certainly, Arduino's um, uh, and the Raspberry Pi um, twenty-five dollar computer. Uh, you know, all kinds of all kinds of other you know cool tools that will be that can be used as part of maker spaces inside schools.
2: Excellent. Well, thank you, David. Uh- we're taking some time out of a Wednesday afternoon for us. Um, we'll let you go, and I just want to say thank you, and we'll certainly be in touch.
1: All right, Steve. Thank you so much for calling. Take care.
0: David Thornburg is one of the wisest educators I know. His views on inquiry-driven, project-based learning are both practical and powerful. If you would like to supercharge the education of your teenager in a similar way to David's education at Lane Tech, you need to know about the resonance innovation fellowship this next year we'll be taking 10 to 15 select teens on a journey of self-discovery excellence with integrity and innovation leadership this is not a club a social gathering or homework tutoring the students in the resonance innovation fellowship will be on a quest to find impact and world change through the backdrop of technology To find out more, email me at stevekurti at ttinvent.com. That's S-T-E-V-E-K-U-R-T-I at T-T-I-N-V-E-N-T dot com. Don't just wonder about the future. Contact us and we'll help you create it.